Okay, welcome to another edition of RC Weekly, a weekly podcast about Jewish life, modern orthodoxy, and religious Zionist world. My name is Ruben Spolter. I'm here with Rabbanit Mali Bravsky. Mali Bravsky is a senior faculty member at Michlelet Mevaseret Yushalayim and maintains a clinical social work practice in Gush Etzion. Hello, Mali. Hello. Okay, we're here with Rabbi Johnny Solomon, who is a teacher at Machon Ma'ayan and Midrashat Torah Chesed, and a writer and editor of Jewish content for numerous organizations around the world. Rev. Johnny, hello. Hi, Rev. Ruben, how are you doing? Hi, my name is Ruben Spolter. I am the director of uh, or OTS, Amiel Bakila, and also the rabbinic liaison for English-speaking countries for Igun Ramanei Tzohar here in Israel. And we welcome you to this week's podcast. I just noticed that we all do this and that, and like, welcome to, I can think that's something about life in Israel as well. So we're going to start with a new feature. Well, we don't have a sound effect for it, but we're calling it the mailbag. We've received a number of interesting uh, communications from people about our podcast last week. Okay, and uh, we're going to, we, we thought we would share some of them with you, not all of it. We're not going to do it in your name unless you tell us uh, that, that you don't mind us uh, quoting you by name. But uh, we wanted to share with you a couple of them and then just give our responses. So I'll do the first one. I'll read the mailbag and then you'll, and then we'll have comments. So a person wrote, for a podcast on tefillah, and primary, primarily about the issue of people failing to connect the tefillah through tefillah to Hashem, I was left rather perplexed as to the content of the podcast. Apart from one or two very brief comments, the podcast said over and over again that there is such an issue, that it exists even in the Dati communities. I would have expected that a podcast, such a podcast, would enlighten the listeners on different approaches that one can take to connect and to make the experience more meaningful. After listening to the podcast, I didn't come away with anything new to help me for, with my tefillah. Okay, so the, the, the commenter goes on, and we thank you for the lengthy email. Rev. Johnny, what do you say? Well, um, first and foremost, we really appreciate all feedback, and please keep on sending the, the comments, the insights, uh, and so thank you very, very much. Secondly, we are here really to, to raise topics and have a conversation, um, and at times we do try and offer some insights, but really it's here for, to have this discussion to bring to light things which often aren't discussed. But because Tefillah really seemed to uh, resonate with so many people, because we seem to highlight something that so many people acknowledge as being a real issue, that being both in the religious Zionist world, and in fact, more broadly in the entire Jewish world, Tefillah being a difficulty, we've since had some conversations. And in fact, just this morning, I, I put a lengthy post on Facebook offering my personal perspectives about Tefillah because that's what we are, three people offering personal perspectives about issues that we see and perhaps solutions we may well wish to present. And uh, so in response to both that uh, uh, respondent and others who expressed interest in the topic and Ebert Pesach Sama, uh, it led to an extensive discussion on his Facebook feed about Tefillah today. I'd like to just share a few insights from, from my experience. Uh, namely that I think that we often don't acknowledge our need to want to pray or our need to need to pray. You know, we're living in a time where we don't often feel a sense of dependence on God. And that's something we need to do. We need to recognize that when we daven, we are often very distracted. Certainly in the weekday, uh, unless you really shut yourself off, you can be distracted by cell phones, by millions of other things. And the halacha says you should try and separate yourself, distance yourself from things that could distract you. Johnny, I, I, just, I just would add, it's interesting, I remember, like there was a period of time where I made a policy of not bringing my cell phone to shul. And I don't know why I stopped doing that, probably because I like my phone. But even during the week, and I found my davening was better 
when I didn't have my phone in shul because it didn't. I I, I just it just left me with without that that distraction even in my own mind. So I agree with that. Thank you. Right. In fact, don't forget, many people even do daven from their phone because it's a very useful portable sidur. Uh, while I understand that may be handy, it's something which I refuse to do. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I, would, I, I, I almost never do it unless I don't simply don't have a sidur with me. I'm on the road or whatever. Yeah, you're at a simcha. Yeah. Right, exactly. The simcha. But often, you know, we talk about tefillah the simcha. Uh, often people only step a few feet away from a booming band, yeah? <laughs> Davening from a phone. And they wonder, how come that Mariv seemed rushed? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you need to... And, and I understand sometimes you're set, you know, in a particular situation, but we need to invest in tefillah. I'll just offer just a couple of quick things, you know. That I say a meditation before I daven, how the mitzvah tefillah is a kiyum of avtadorecha kamocha, and I find that to be transformative. I mentioned the use of my sidur, um, but ultimately you have to visualize, or at least I'd encourage people to visualize, and I'd encourage people to try and understand a little bit more of the words of tefillah. Wait, John, you, you know, said that last week, you talked about visualizations. I didn't understand entirely. Visualize what? So, they say the basic halacha is to visualize you're in the Beit HaMikdash, and that you're also looking beyond and standing in front of the Kisah HaKovah. That's the basic statement for Shulchan Aruch. Meaning if somebody is unaware of that, then strangely enough, they seem to have missed, uh, you know, Simon uh, Tzadi Hay. But beyond that, many people talk about how visualization is a process, is a journey into the Beit HaMikdash, or it's a process of a journey in terms of the world at large. I mentioned this in my Facebook post, uh, Rabbi Dr. Joshua Golding's new book called The Jewish Spiritual Path, which is jam-packed with these ideas. But visualization is not something just for uh, those who are more fanciful. The Chazim Ish discusses this, and Heshi Kleiman discuss, uh, mentions it in Praying with Fire. Visualization, I think, is a basic requirement for people who wish to convince themselves that they're beyond where they're standing, because tefillah should push you to recognize that you're not simply in that Dalit Amas, you're trying to reach a higher place. And that requires both the effort, the avodash the labor of the heart and the mind. And I think that incorporates what people often refer to as visualization. Okay. Molly, but, what, what would you like to Molly, what do you think? Okay. So first of all, I want to echo um, what both of you have said about appreciating the feedback. Um, and I, I think it's been very helpful and it's been very fruitful. And I also found that um, my experience this week feedback that we had received um, I also had put up a, a Facebook, uh, if anybody's interested, um, post about this because it happened to have been that this Friday um, I went to a tefillah that I found to be particularly moving and inspiring. And I'll get to what that was in a second, but I think that one of the things that crystallized for me most out of our conversation last week was that a, a couple of things. But the first one is that, that I think a lot of times when we talk about how can we make tefillah better, People are like, I have the answer, it's X, or I have the answer, it's Y. And I think what we have is that different people uh, respond differently to different types of, of prayer, of, of, um, of ways of davening. And so I think the solutions need to, need to be multiple. I don't think that there's going to be one thing that fits all. I think different people are going to respond to different types of prayer. Um, and therefore, I think that what we should be doing is presenting... As, as Johnny just did, uh, you know, multi multiplicity of options for people, um, and then people can find what works for them, and we should have different types. And again, what I said was that kahilot communities, in conjunction with their rabbinic leaders or their even their lay leaders, perhaps, should be 
thinking creatively and and cre- and creating different multiple modalities that will work for different people. Um, so again, for me, one of the things that I found particularly moving was a tefillah. For, I find that singing um, in combination with a very religiously and halakhically committed Sibur uh, community, that works for me very well. Um, and so I had gone to this Tfilah Bet Sibur, Rav Dov Zinger, who does this every single week, every single month on Rosh Chodesh. I found it so elevating and so inspiring. And another example of that, working or not working, is last time we talked about Karla Bachmanyanim, right? And Ruby was like, uh, you know, it's just after the first three, I'm done. But the truth is that for me, I can go to a Karla Bachmanyan every Friday and I will still find it to be a spiritually inspiring experience. So I think that that's very important is is to like recognize that there are multiple ways some people for some people it may be more about bior tefillah and for other people it might be more about um an emotional connection and i don't know that one way is right and i think that that's that's an important piece to mention i agree with johnny though that like the basic um the two basic things that i think are like non-negotiable are an awareness that tefillah is standing before god that's what it is there's that's basic that's very much based on a philosophic but i think it's I think it's primarily correct, um, and that 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 has to be in our in our focus when we when we dive in. Um, another thing I wanted to say was that I lost what I was going to say, so I'll say something else, and maybe I'll remember what I was going to say. Um, another thing I find interesting is that I don't dive in with a minion every time I dive in. Um, so, and I find the challenge is much greater in Tfilah Sibur when I dive in on my own. Um, I have a much easier time having kavana. I, I lose it because of my personality. My impatience comes in when I have to wait for somebody else to be davening. That's when my problem is. If I'm engaged, if I'm davening, I have a much easier time focusing. Um, and so, like, I just want to point that out. I don't know that that, you know, there are solutions that, that come with that because, you know, Tfilabitsibor seems to be the way it's set up to be, certainly at least for men, is, you know, non-optional. But I just wanted to raise that point. Oh, and the other point I wanted to make was I agree with Johnny about Setting a kavana, I agree. I also say the tefillah of Elimelech Adaraba, which is also very much about thinking about my day and thinking about my interactions with people during during the day. If I say that, it helps me focus my my tefillah or at least my shacharit much more. So I, I agree with I agree with Johnny about that. Okay, so I would like to first of all I would like to respond. My first response to the to the email is. I don't view our podcast as a spirituality podcast, and I'm very happy that we're offering these these uh, these um, insights, and they're very useful. And I must say that my davening, I really feel, has been much better this week, just for the discussion about it. It really made me focus more on tefillah, and I think that was good and helpful. But I see this podcast is more it's 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 not it's not about spirituality, but more about trends in the religious Zionist community. And what really brought, um, prompted me to want to discuss the topic were the articles by Rabbi Lamid. And the notion that, you know, we live in a community, religious Zionism is a community that has, has demanded halachic change. It demanded that, that, that religious Judaism uh, address realities in the world and said that even though the, many of the rabbis and even the greatest rabbis of our time say that the, the return to Zion is not a religious experience, we believe that it is. And we believe that we should, uh, we should you know, make... We should make significant um, life decisions because of these changes, and and that's uh, some sort of an undercurrent that that religious Zionism has accepted, and said the state of Israel is important, and our children serve in the army is important, and we believe in innovation in, in a certain way, 
and the question is, does that uh, does that extend to to our religious experience in other ways as well? Not just do I insert a prayer of the state of Israel, which classicists would say, I'm not going to insert anything. We're going to recite everything the same way. But we don't do that. We say different things. We add different things. So now, are we willing to take things away because the experience isn't working, or only we're only going to do that because it's connected to the state of Israel? And that's really what prompted this discussion from my point of view. And uh, and it's it's uh, I think something that's worth continuing to discuss. You know, it's it's going to take you know maybe we don't have those broad shoulders, and it's going to take a a posek not from the religious Zionist world to say you know this Chazarat Shat thing really isn't working. You know, Mali talked about it's easier to dive it in and have Kavana in private, you're not waiting for anybody else. But my davening experience is exactly that. I always daven in a minion, and I'm always going to daven in a minion, God willing, and I want to daven in a minion, but I want the Tefillah B'Tzibor to reflect the realities of our time, and not because, you know, it's just something that we do because we do it. So that's the tension that I wanted to discuss, and I think that we did that. That being said, I think that the, the advice that we can give, if it helps your davening, and the discussion that emanated from that is incredibly useful, and also incredibly important. Okay, that's uh, issue number one. Email number two, we received an interesting email Okay, regarding your podcast on Olenei Shabbat. Did you compare contrast them to the local Jewish community papers in the New York City area, which also feature captive a- advertising, are placed in shuls and boxes on street corners, but since they look like newspapers, aren't typically read in shul? And the answer is we did not mostly because we live in Israel, and uh, I, now that I think about it, I do realize that there are those newspapers put out, but I've, as he's mentioned, I've never seen one in shul, because it doesn't belong in shul, which only makes me realize even more, like the Alonai Shabbat is a bluff. Like, you put in one, you know, pseudo-Dvar Torah, and all of a sudden you can read all the, all the gossip you want, and all the restaurant reviews you want during shul. And it made it highlight, that email highlighted for me just how inappropriate these things are in shul and during davening. Any comments about that last email? I'm in agreement. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I'm fully with you. I mean, that that's the point. I think it's as absurd to read some, and I do what's to stress, some Alonai Shabbat in shul as to bring in a regular newspaper in shul and just kind of lay back and read what's going on in the sport pages. It's just absurd. Yeah, Molly has nothing to say because she's... Did you notice them, Molly, this my week? Kid, you know, my kids brought home the Alonai Shabbat for me because they need to, like, you know... You're like, Ima, this is the world of Alonai Shabbat. She's like, okay. Did you read them? No. <laughs> you didn't even look. Good for you. Did not even okay. look. Okay, we're going to turn our attention to our second topic. Thanks for the mailbag. Keep it coming. If you're interested, we appreciate it. Okay, this week... Actually, it happened in the middle of last week, but... We, we, an issue came up regarding uh, uh, something that made all of the firm press, and we thought it would be appropriate to talk about, because uh, from our perspective, that that was the Haredi wedding with the uh, with the with the young woman who the Kala who decided who she wanted to drum at the end. She played the drums, and it was recorded on video, and it got back to the Eder Haredit, and the Eder Haredit told the band. And probably the wedding hall that this is not appropriate, this is not acceptable, and we're not going to let you play in our in our in our community unless you agree never to happen again. And they sent this 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 apologetic letter about how sorry they feel and how it's never going to happen again. And uh, this caused a a, a sort of a, a, a tidal wave of responses in the in the Facebook, as I would like to say. First, from uh, there was a response from uh, an interesting response. I think. 
a response from, I would say, a reactionary response, like, who are they to tell a woman not to play drums? Miriam Hanavia was the first drumette, drumess, who played, the, who played, although she actually played for the you women. just call her a drummer. Drumming. I don't know. Women. There's no. There's no word for female drummer. Okay. Just call her a drummer. That's drummer. part of the, um, yeah, you know, revolution. Uh, you know, first. One, you don't have to call <laughs> okay. people et. You can just call people an actor. They don't have to be an actress. They don't have to be okay. a. Okay. You know, well, there is such a thing as an actress in the world. Good point. <laughs> yes, but you should notice that there are women who who will not call themselves actresses. They will call themselves actors because they don't believe that everything needs a feminine. Um, Okay. You okay. see, my, my, you know, my, my juices are already rising, and I haven't even started talking. I know, seriously. Okay. And then I, I will mention my name, Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg, wrote a series of blog posts, and this was responded to by, uh, by uh, an article in the Times of Israel about communal norms. And his basic point was that while his wife, who happens to be a drummer, drummed at their wedding, and no one had a problem with it, he has, uh, he, he, he felt that each community has the right to establish its own communal norms. And and it wasn't a, it's not appropriate to uh, create a, you know a reaction and a response every time the Haredi community wants to establish norms that are appropriate for itself. If we want to have drummers in our weddings, then Guzendeid have drummers in our weddings. And now I'm sort of paraphrasing Rabbi Goldberg. But if the Haredi don't want to have drums at their weddings, then they also shouldn't have drums at their weddings. Okay, Molly, go. <laughs> okay, so here we go. So obviously, you know. <laughs> I have a lot to say, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let's let's try to focus, stay focused, and uh, say what I have to say. You know, okay, here we go. So my 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 daughter always says to me that I should put out some type of a series called MythBusters. You know, everybody thinks X, but this is the truth, and this is one of them um, because this is one of the this is one of my pet peeves. Um, Judaism is misogynistic against women, and the Torah is misogynistic against women. And why am I bringing this up? Because part of this, okay, let me start by saying this. I think it's really important to be clear about the fact that Judaism as a religion is not a misogynistic religion. Uh, okay, and I'll get to why, why, what that has to do with this. But like, I always go on some type of a crazy rant, whether it's to my children or to my students, explaining to them that if you look in the Torah, it may be a patriarchal system because at the time that, that was it was a patriarchal society and you know the torah is given in a, in a certain time but I, I always quote this wonderful article which i recommend anybody who's interested in reading by uriel simone professor uriel simone i think it's uh, i think the larger topic is is when he's talking about Eshet manoach but he basically uses it as an opportunity to talk about women in the torah and what he says is it's clear that women's status in the patriarchal society was secondary because it's a patriarchal society. But then he makes two very important points. One is that that's not because there's anything about women that's intrinsically less capable. And the way we see that in the Torah is that when a man cannot do his duty as public in, in the public realm, right? If, if the man's realm of patriarchal society is the public one and the woman's is the private one, if the man can't do it, the women are not just... Um, able to step up, but they're encouraged to step up. And so female leadership is found whenever the male leadership is not there, right? So you'll have Dvorah Nevi'ah. Um, you will have Benot Slavchad um, inheriting from their parents, which demonstrates that it's not something intrinsic within women. It was just the way the society was set up. And the second thing he points out is that is that really there's this duality, that men were given this outside role and women were given the home role. But, but if that's true, what we see also is that women are the ones who are considered the experts in their realm. So in almost, I, I, I probably, perhaps every, unless somebody can 
prove me wrong, but I'll say almost just in case, every time there's a there's a disagreement between a husband and a wife or a father and a mother, or a man or a woman about something that has to do with the family, the woman is always right, right? So the examples would be, you know, Avraham and Sarah about uh, Yishmael, uh, Yaakov and, and Yitzchak and Rivka about Esav, um, even Chana and Elkanah about what to do with Shmuel, whether they should wait until he's weaned, bring him up, whatever it is. Um, the, so the women are always right, and the women are always the defenders of life, and they're always examples of that. Okay, so that's my little rant. Why am I saying that? And I, 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 I'm sorry to stop you. What does this have to do with our discussion? I will tell you what it has to do with it. <laughs> I, I'll tell you exactly what it has to do with it. Because I'm seeing more and more of my students starting to really come in as 18-year-old young women with a very, it's almost a given for them that Judaism has a problem with women. That there's a women problem in Judaism. And they're not talking about the kinds of things that, that bothered me, which are like, and this is the second point I want to make, which is Chazal, I agree, once you start putting Judaism in the hands of human beings and Judaism evolves, we have to figure out a mechanism to, um, to, to kind of keep Judaism up with evolving standards you know, of our age, and that's what Halacha is for, and that's what Halacha does. But, 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 to, but that doesn't mean that Judaism is in its inherent structure misogynistic. Whoa, 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 one second. You, I, I really, I, I think I really have a problem with what you just said, because it sounds to me like you said that in its pure form, Judaism is fine, but in, when the Chazal got to it, no. they just messed it up. No, that's not they, what I would say. I would say, they, what, they, first of all, no, I would say Chazal, I would even say more. I would say Chazal, if you look at the overarching, um, in my opinion, like thrust of Chazal in the Talmud, right, in the Gemara, in the Halachot, the overarching thrust is actually ahead of its time if you compare it to other parallel cultures in terms of respecting women and giving women rights. At the same time, that doesn't mean that it was, it was given at a certain time. And so you can't expect them to not be affected and influenced by the socio the, 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 the sociocultural reality in which they were living. And therefore, I think that they did have views of women that we that that have we, we do would not share or maybe not all of Chazal, Chazal are not a monolith but certainly parts of them or parts or or individuals and I don't that's okay it doesn't bother me that they that they do that um, and I would say that even given that they're always very protective of women right meaning even if they have a perspective on women that doesn't necessarily always align with our perspective on women they they're always there there's not never what again like i would never use the word misogynistic because it's it's there's always a again a, a paternalistic you can say paternalistic protective. you can say protective but that's different Correct. than misogyny now why am i saying all of this yeah why are you saying all this yes why am i saying all of this because <laughs> that's why it's so important today to yes, stand up when we see things happening that that do have overtones of messages to women that are use the word misogynistic, but maybe I would problematic. You cannot on women when they're walking in the streets of Beit right? You cannot um, t- erasing women's faces for magazines. To me, that smacks a little bit of misogyny, and so that's the reason I gave that maybe too lengthy kind of introduction. That's why, for me, this is such an important issue, because it's not true Judaism. It's just not. And therefore, we have to stand up and say, this is not Judaism. It's just, it's just not an, an alternative. The Burqa women, 
right? I Wait, so you, wait a second, what about the drumming? So you're okay? Oh, okay, Meaning so the you're drumming. Okay with the, are you okay with the drumming or are you okay with the outcry against the drumming? So okay. Against so the, the outcry so, against the, so okay. against so, the, yes. whatever. So what I, okay, so here <laughs> is where things become complex, right? Because at the end of the day, I have um, in his, his analysis of the situation, which is the following. Um, there are things that I think we have to stand up and say, not okay, not for anybody, not any part of the Jewish community. Right. And again, that would be I would even I would even say, you know, the Burka ladies in Beit Shemesh there. I would say like that's just too far over a line of anything that's that's like it's just not Jewish. That's not a Jewish tradition to wear a Burka is not Jewish. And I have no problem with anybody from any segment of the Jewish community going to any other segment of the Jewish community and saying that goes too far. Right. And obviously I would include in this any type of abuse. Right. I don't you like the, the, certain things. You know, it doesn't matter what community I'm part of. I say, no, that's okay. And I'm allowed to, to speak for you. Where does it get tricky? It gets tricky when one community has certain standards, others community have other standards, right? And then the question becomes how, like, A, does what you've done, drumming, right? When, when you say no drumming, right? Is that something that's so problematic it, 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 you know, gets clumped in with burqa wearing and, you know, all kinds of other things. And I have the right to say no. And I'm going to you know, like tell you that you are, you know, it's like I, I can stand up and, and kind of say no to you. Or does that fall into the category of my community believes X, you have a right to believe Y, right? But, but, but I disagree with you, right? And that's where the line becomes very tricky. So, so what I would say, my solution, yeah, I can't give my solution. I'll give my solution. Yeah. Yeah, go, give your solution. Okay. Yeah. My solution is the following. I, and, and I, because I think that the bigger, the, the, the problem is not just, um, you know, like the theoretical one that, okay, we don't, we, you know, we believe what they're doing is objectively problematic. It's the creep phenomenon, right? It's your community is going to not allow women to, let's say, dress a certain way, speak in public in a certain in certain venues, drum, right? I'm afraid that or, or show pictures, advertise with pictures of women. Okay, my solution is we need to make the statement very strongly, not in our community, right? And that's that's what Rabbi Goldberg said. He said we need to strengthen the message in our community and say this is inappropriate. And this is why we believe that this is wrong. And we have to put our lines very, very clearly about what we believe. And then when we talk to others, we have to talk to them from a place of respect and explain how we disagree and why we disagree. But we have to do that not from a place of contempt and not from a place of kind of banging them over the head with how horrible they are, but but from a place of a, of a, of a healthy discussion of ideas these are my values this is why i think this is what i'm doing is correct and what you're doing is problematic and dialogue with those communities there's a lot that's been said and there's i think a lot that needs to be said and i truth be told i suspect that whatever time we have is going to be insufficient so to uh, <laughs> to already be ahead of the comments we're going to get no we're going to, not going to cover everything which is related to this and spin-off issues uh, point number two. Yeah, uh, I want to. I want to just try to remain focused. I really. I understand. I totally agree with you. So try to remain focused on the issue of the drumming 
and and the response to it. I think we're going to focus on that, meaning the, the idea of do we as a community have a right to criticize the Haredi community for doing something that we think or for make, creating limitations that we think are are beyond accept, acceptable, that are an over over extension of tzniut and an over restriction of women. So let, I'll, I'll be very, very focused. Firstly, I think we have to be fair. There is no such thing as the Haredi community. There are Haredi communities, there are Hasidic communities, just as much as there are, I think, different religious Zionist communities. And we have to recognize that there is tremendous divergence in law and in, in customs uh, with those that people easily kind of paintbrushes just saying the Haredim, I'm strongly against that kind of generic labeling, which I think is grossly unfair and shows a lack of understanding. And I know you don't mean it that way. A lack of understanding of the nuances within uh, the lives of our brothers and sisters. Nonetheless, um, I believe that's point number one. Point number two is I believe that every machloket the Shem Shemaim has its place around the table. And so if you were to ask me, do I have a right to challenge uh, another Jew about things that they do in a manner which is becoming, uh, I think, yeah, just as much as they have to me. And that's called, what's what's happened, that's what fills my bookcase of, of rabbinic discussions. That's where people come along and say, well, I do this thing, but I'm not quite sure about what's been done there, and people have a conversation. And, of course, sadly, nowadays, we struggle to even have these conversations. So the very question, can I validly, and in a... In a um, respectful way challenge behavior norms practices of other jews absolutely and this shouldn't be a one-way street i think it hasn't been a one-way street and we shouldn't be fearful to be able to say with all due respect i disagree i disagree with this practice or this custom in respect to this particular issue and localize just the drumming there are other things that marley said which i could go on to but uh, i'm, I'm going to hold myself back i believe that Yes, there is objective halakha in a variety of areas. There are also communal norms, just as much as there are other communal uh, norms and customs which need to be acknowledged. Nonetheless, what we are seeing in a very significant way is a rise of stricture in terms specifically of women in the wider Orthodox world, and one which is spanning beyond communities because we don't live in bubbles. So that which begins in one community doesn't generally stay in that community, things spread, and oftentimes people wish to be the policemen. And specifically in reference to women and, and uh, a modesty, we've had, and we have, sneer police, uh, not just in schools, which is sometimes concerning, but on the street. Just a few weeks ago, I was at a doctor's appointment in Bet Shemesh, where it said, on this crossing, only men can cross. Now, this is, I'm not particularly pulling out any individual community, but there comes a point where nothing can, that can't be justified neither in respect to law nor with respect to custom. You, you know that those clear. signs are against the law and there's a whole organization in Beit Shemesh that's I'm, fighting I'm to have it aware. taken down. Yeah. And I think I'm that that's a, a very important point. I'm unaware, I, I'm a board member of Chokmat Nashim and I know this is something which uh, the director of Chokmat Nashim and many other organizations have had to take to court simply because they haven't been listened to other than when in court. Nonetheless, they still exist, right? Uh, so we have to be very clear that, yes, there are halachas in a whole bunch of areas. Yes, there are customs which can be normative, which can be fringe specific to particular communities. But nonetheless, public spaces and private parties aren't a place where a senior police person, 
should think that they have any right to make any comment, uh, especially with something which neither fits into any recognized framework of halakha or in a meaningful uh, or recognized way any framework of even a tzniot norm for a particular community. So we, here we have a question of protecting Judaism from extremism. And I think this was used as a case study by a variety of peoples where this is extremism gone too far, where there were victims, where there was shaming, where religious power was used against a family and a community which didn't ask for the opinion of those who decided to write their proclamations. Uh, and so this is no longer anything like a machloket, and certainly not even a machloket l'shem shemaim. This is power, uh, and this is at times uh, attacking and victimizing individuals merely for being normal. And although in Israel, especially in the religious Zionist community, the word normal is often thrown around in ways which are also disturbing. Well, we'll have so, to talk about that as a podcast maybe next right, week or two we weeks or this, now. Right? Yeah. Be- being normal is not just okay, but I think is uh, you know, part of... The fifth chelik of Shulchan Aruch, that's a whole mm-hmm. different conversation too. But being normal, and, and if we are going to make up things which are so far away both from uh, the, the halachas that we know and even the customs that we do have, we do value and do recognize, and then enforce them on people that don't live that way in a harsh manner, uh, I think we do need to raise up our hand and say, we, you know, we object. And Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg's series of posts were fascinating. Uh, I know that Mali made reference to them. Sorry, and you made reference to them. But there were a series. First, he made some general comments, and he basically said we need to respect every community. But then he actually took a second look and said, I don't mean that we should allow uh, extreme positions to be enforced on others who don't hold that. And we, in his piece, he drew a distinction between the U.S. and Israel. Because if in a place where, you know, li- live and let live, that's fine. But here, in a number of places, that's not the situation. That wasn't the situation in this particular case. And that's why so many people vociferously objected. I want to push back back a little bit. I want to respond and and say, like, I'm actually quite torn about this. Because on the one hand, it was a private party. And I very much feel that if a person wants to be a part of the Haredi community, like we talked about this in our discussion of communal norms, if you want to be a part, a member of a community, it's understood that you're going to uh, um, respect the norms within that community and the accepted practices. Now, I don't know if they thought about whether it would be appropriate or inappropriate uh, to play drums. I actually don't know if they really minded, you know, like, I, I don't know. We, we don't ever ask these people afterwards how they responded, you know. I, I happen to think that, you know, in that community, it's, it might be inappropriate for a woman to be drumming with the male band in front of, even at the end of a wedding. Who knows? So I, I, it's right, very I, interesting. I, I want to agree I, with you on that. Because... You know, I, I actually watched the video, and it made me, like, it's, it's not, I, I mean, it might be fine for our community, but I certainly think that it, I could see why, why, you know, Haredi community would have a problem with that. And it could very well, well be that the wait, wedding I, hall I, had a problem I, with I, it. I, wanna, I think but, that's but very important. Wait, wait, let me, let me respond. Let me finish. Okay. On the other hand, I want to push back a little bit on going entirely the other way, and I said I'm torn about this, because we as a, we, we live, you know, whatever you want to label us, centrist, modern, religious Zionist, we live in the middle. We try, everybody tries to find that golden mean, but we really do try to find that golden mean between the modernity and between our religiosity, and we find ourselves pulled in every which direction. And when, when 
when one side, we'll call it, or one extreme pulls in a certain direction, then there are always forces that it, it, it not just, I'm not talking about walking in Beit Shemesh, and I think that's terrible, and people spitting on other people. That, I think that's, that should be obvious. But it's un, the trickle-down, I believe, is unavoidable. And, and, and it, what happens is that things that were all of a sudden were accepted in our community as being normative and acceptable all of a sudden are not normative and acceptable because in the cola, in the local cola, they don't do it. And I would push back and say, even though Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi Goldberg really feels that there is mutual respect, and I'm sure there is mutual respect in his community, the, the, what, what they decide to do in the Lakewood cola in, you know, in small town America, that has great, great impact on what the modern Orthodox shul can do or can't do or does do or does not do. Because if the rabbi then all of a sudden realizes that if he doesn't do now what they do in the kolel, so now his more right-winning members are no longer going to come to shul and they're going to leave the shul and then they're going to and they're they're going to be members of the kolel. And if he doesn't do what they what the what the left-leaning Orthodox shul is doing, you know, a more progressive side, then those members are going to leave and 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 you lose your community. You literally lose your community. And I. I've seen it happen. I've had that experience. So on the, on the other hand, you have to push back. And I think, I think that it's certainly legitimate on the one hand for communities to say this is our norm. And I think Molly has the right answer. And for us to say we have our norm and it's a halachic norm and it's an acceptable norm. And maybe even to say, maybe even to say that the the demands that they're making on their on their communities are not in the realm of halachic Judaism. Because otherwise, people begin to wonder, well, why aren't we keeping this halacha? Why aren't we doing this this way? And there have to be definitions. And I think that sometimes pushback is necessary in order to say that, to give people a sense of comfort within the framework in which we find ourselves. Because without it, our framework falls apart, both to the right and to the left. It's harder and harder to find a middle ground where you are on the one hand halachic, the word normal, I can't stand using the word normal, you're halachic, but at the same time, you're not veering toward the extreme out of a fear that drumming will lead to licentiousness. And that's going away, and if we don't defend it and don't protect it, the extremes are going to eat at us until there is nothing in the middle anymore. And I just, I gave you the example before, you know, for whatever reason, I live in, I would say, a more uh, Hardali community, but for it's now accepted practice. The rabbi of the yeshuv has decided, it's accepted that women cannot speak in shul. Women cannot speak in the sanctuary of our shul, to men or to women. And that if a woman's going to come and speak, then she should speak in the ulam, in the, in the social hall. Where did that rule come from? Whoever made a, I'm not entirely sure if there's such a rule, what, like a woman can't give a dry Torah for women. You know what I'm saying? A woman can't speak in front of men, for sure. Like, that was obvious that a woman can't speak in front of men. Where did that come from? You know what I'm saying? All of a sudden, but that's, how did that creep into my community? How, how is that now the halachic norm? And our rabbi doesn't want to insult the issue of rabbi because he wants to be respectful and maintain whatever. And then before you know it, and, and you know, sooner or later, in our lunch food, women are not going to be able to speak either. Okay, so then I want to respond to that. So first of all, obviously, I agree with Rajani. And I think your examples um, are good examples of, a, uh, you know, public spaces are good examples where you can say, like, I own this space just as much as you do. And so, therefore, you, from the more ex- your more extreme perspective, you don't have a right to impose that on me, right? My, my main point is no community has a right to impose their standards onto the other community, right? So, obviously, in the public spaces that, you know, and then we go back to our status quo conversations, but... Clearly, that's where you say, like, you can't do that. Um, but when it comes to the drumming, I feel like 
I don't have a right to say, like, if that community follows the Badats, whatever, you know, whatever it is, I don't have a right to say to them that they don't have, the same way I don't want them telling me what to do, I don't think that I have a right to tell them what to do. Then, yeah, but they do think they have a right to tell you what and to do. And then we have to fight back against They do, and they right? do. So, exactly. So we have to fight back against that. And again, I do think we have a right. In, in, so why can they tell you what to do and I can't tell them what to do? They shouldn't. Both things. They should not tell me what to do. And I have to say, don't tell me what to do. And by the way, I also think that I can go even farther and say, maybe I do have not just a right, but perhaps even an obligation. But I don't know. Maybe I'll just say a right. I think it's too far to say an obligation. To, yes, dialogue with that community, let's say, about the, a drumming situation. I, I agree with Ray Goldberg about that one. But if I really believe that there are, let's say, women in that, in that community that, that want to do that and that don't have a voice, can I maybe help empower those women? Can I help them find their voice? Can I work within the community? Can I educate within the community? That all I think is legitimate, right? That's, that's what Rajani was talking about when he talked about machloket l'shem shamayim. I can, I, I can have dialogue and I can try to persuade that my position is right and hope that they will adopt things that, that are closer to my position. Um, but when you when you come back to your last thing of like, again, what I called at the beginning of the creep, which, you know, it creeps into our communities, I think that the solution is, you know, in kavod, but like we have to grow a backbone as in modern Orthodox Jews or Datilumi Jews, like like we have to be able to say ad khan. And I agree with you, it has to be enforced as a lecharchila and as a halachic norm, and we have to stop looking over our shoulders and saying, what are people going to say? And we've had more than one situation in Alon Shvot where we've had public, one of them being um, women speaking in shul, right? But people, what are people going to say? And they're going to look at Alon Shvot. I don't care, right? I don't care. And and I, and I Dafka, the opposite. I want, I if I really believe that what I'm doing is halachically correct, is ethically correct, um, is, then I, I then let us be a model. Right? Why are we so insecure? Molly, I wish it was so easy, but if I insisted on doing that, if I insisted on doing that, then people in the show would leave the show. They would say, you can do what you want. but Okay, and then I say, fine. And we had a, a, you know, you mentioned, um, I think in our first podcast, Women Dancing with the Sefer Torah. Right. I was raised in our community. You don't think that there were people who said, this is not my shul, this is not a lone shul, what's happening here? I didn't join this shul to go to a conservative shul, Right. Okay, that's very nice. The community is going to have a conversation. We're going to have a dialogue and we're going to make a decision based on halachic considerations, based on ethical considerations, based on hearing the voices of the people in the community. And we are not going to make a decision based on what are the people going to think in Yad Ben Yamin when they find out that this is happening at Alon Shvot. No, now Yad Ben Yamin, our 10 members are going to leave the show. So 10 members can I leave the show. I, go I ahead and leave. I'm sorry. So this is where say, I say. Our show didn't make that decision. So then, okay. But that, but that's where I say the same way I feel extremely strongly about I don't have a right to impose on other people. This is where I say you don't have a right to impose on me. You're not going to terrorize me. I'm sorry. Go build your own show. This is my show. This is what I believe in. If it means I have to suffer the loss of 10 members, let me suffer the loss of 10 members and not lose my values, not lose, lose my principles, not lose my halachic integrity, not lose my personal integrity. Okay. But like, I, I have no patience for this, especially I think it's a malaise of the modern Orthodox community that they feel always second best. We make modern Orthodoxy halachically rigorous, halachically serious, um, a, a seriously developed Hashkafic perspective and live it. That's really what I believe. And stop calling ourselves wishy-washy. We're not wishy-washy. We, we, we're complex. Complexity is not a, a, a negative thing. It's hard. It's harder to, to be, you know, dancing on the edge of the, 
you know, the fence. It's much easier to fall onto one side or the other. But if I believe that what God, you know, again, let's say it less, less uh, extremely. If I believe that the proper way to practice Judaism is to dance on that fence, then I'm going to dance on the fence. You don't like it, you go to I know, but, the fence. But uh, with, with respect, and there's been an, an issue here, which I'm not going to go into the details, but where decisions have been made, uh, not necessarily in sync with a, a considerable proportion of one particular community. Uh, and sometimes there's a vast difference between psak and policy. But what often affects a decision of, of a religious leader or religious communities isn't merely their conscience or even necessarily the will uh, of a small group of, uh, or major group of the community. And I, I may agree with you entirely, but often it's, it's the things on the shelves. You know, unless you can show me a, a ruling by a serious posek, then I'd rather not do that. And, and all too often there aren't the numbers and there isn't the rigor uh, addressed to some of these topics as is done to other areas. And so you find yourself wanting that the Rav may well say, you know, I want to agree with you, but when it comes down to it, you know, 50 Poskim say this is a problem. And one Posek who perhaps is seen by some as a lightweight says, this is okay. So what am I to do? So then you um, need Rabbeim who have enough self-confidence to say, I'm going to put myself out there. And and I have had experience with Rabbeim who are less willing to do that and experience with Rabbeim who are more willing to do that. Right, so we're on the same page there, absolutely. Yeah. But nonetheless, uh, we see this played out time after time, and people are very, very fearful, especially when nothing is localized. I place. just, I think, I Things think it would be nice. It would be nice if we lived in an ideal world, but we don't live in an ideal world. We live in a world with right. of real pressure of real people who don't have that backbone, and I think that's why rabbinic leadership, I, a needs to, or not rabbinic leadership, or communal leadership needs to. On the one hand, I agree with you. Find that backbone, but on the other hand, I think sometimes push back, and pushing back by saying, "What you do in your community does affect my community." And while I respect, while I respect, you know, you, your right to make different decisions, but you have to also understand the effects of your, your community. Which is that? That's basically what I'm saying. Wait, but Ruby, why? And therefore, and therefore, yes. the erasure of women in the Haredi community in their publications. You know, if there's internal publications, that's one thing. But if it's a wide publication, no, I think we should boycott them. Well, but I don't think people should. The, I don't think people should be, be buying the same thing. I think modern Orthodox people should say, right. I'm not buying Mishpacha magazine." But that's what I'm that, saying. I'm saying. Whatever, I don't know, whatever magazine does it. You know, I don't I, know I'm just saying, that's my whole point. I agree with you. If Mishpacha magazine is not going to show women, the modern Orthodox community should say, then you are not representing me and I'm not going to buy your product or advertise in your product. I agree. That's Correct. What I, I, I'm saying. I'd, I'd like to interject here. I, firstly, I mean, I've taken that decision in terms of Mishpacha magazine, but it never claimed to represent the, right. the modern Orthodox religious Zionist community. But let's take a different position, which is you have numerous... Uh, leaders, specifically here rabbinic leaders, who often are expected or assumed to be voicing the positions of religious Zionist worlds, and yet their rulings are often really not much different to that of of those that you may deem to be at least one category of Haredi Judaism. You think sometimes of the rulings specifically about uh, Tzniot, but not exclusively by Rav Shoma Avinera, and you say, I really don't see much difference between some, somebody like him who is perceived by many to be at least a voice within the religious Zionist world and others. I'll give you one very specific and concrete example. As you may know, I'm writing a sefer on Hilchot Shechianu, and I've explored the question of whether it's appropriate or, or the, the halakhic appropriateness of Shechianu to wedding and whether a bride should recite it. Rav Yaakov Ariel has a ruling which says a bride shouldn't say Shechianu to her wedding because it's not Sanua. And on what basis? His opinion. 
I, I respect, I'm sure his opinion is interesting, a variety of matters, but on this point I take issue, because it seems almost arbitrary that a woman can't say something uh, in her own chuppah, especially, by the way, when numerous poskim do talk about women saying shekhyan at the engagement or a wedding, seems preposterous. And this is another example of a move, shall we call it, to the right, although perhaps that itself isn't the right description, where we wish to seem to be stricter than necessarily is represented in halachic literature, because this is a question of halachic inflation. You know, as the world gets stricter for a whole bunch of reasons, which itself deserves a whole podcast to itself, I need to hold my own. And like Reuven said, that's how communities uh, develop. I know in London, I know numerous communities that follow that same model that he described. So we have numerous people within even religious Zionism who pull out the Tznuk card at times it seems completely uh, almost arbitrary. I don't want to be disrespectful, but ones which I can't fully get my head around. I agree with you 100,000%. Okay, um, wait, I just want to answer. I, I, sorry, yeah. But, you know, being the woman, Chaviti Alvisari, all of these battles... Um, and, and like, you know, I find myself in a funny position because half the time I'm the like, you know, voice of moderation and half the time I'm the flaming feminist you know, because I try oh, to you're find walking this, on, you're walking the fence. I'm walking. I, I am. Exactly but so that's exactly what I want to say to Johnny about this. And I'll say this very carefully, but I will say that my daughter once came home and said, but the Rabbanim say about, and she quoted certain religious positions by certain rabbis, perhaps some of which you mentioned. And my husband said to her, let's get one thing very clear. That person is not a person that we consider um, our, halakha, our halakhic authority. The fact that those people are affiliated with a certain part of the religious Zionist world, and we talked about the fact that the religious Zionist world is not monolithic, does not mean the fact that your friend quotes to you, Rabbi X, as saying that you must do X or you may not do X, that should not freak you out. We have a backbone enough to say we don't follow that sock. And that's not part of our worldview, and I'm not going to be intimidated by that. So, well said. And with that, and with that, we will cut it off because we're ending our we're ending we're we're ending our discussion. We're a little bit uh, towards the end of our time. I want to thank Molly Bravsky and Rabbi Johnny Solomon for their thoughts and and uh, their input and uh, for being part of this this podcast. I want to thank my son Petachis Bolter for. Uh, writing and performing the intro and out music. I want to thank all of you for your comments. Please continue to share them with us. You can share them on our personal Facebook pages. You can send us email or on the RCB Facebook page. And uh, 